Hope everybody's recovered from their Christmas dinner and their Christmas cheer and everything else. And um, it just seems strange this year with Christmas and New Year's on Tuesday. It's like everybody's getting both Monday and Tuesday off both weeks. And why even go to work on Wednesday through Friday? It's just I was out this morning when normally the traffic is heavy on any given workday, school day, and it was like Saturday morning before 10 o'clock. It was, nobody was out. It was strange. Okay, the only announcements I am, I remember, let me see if I have an announcement sheet up here, is that we will not, ha- we will have Bible class on Tuesday. We are also, Cheryl, let's uh, make a note of this. Um, I've got to make a decision about communion since I leave on January 9th to go to Kiev, and so I'll be gone the usual about 15, 16 days, and during that time we have some special uh, videos we're going to show from the recent pre-trip class, and John Williamson is also going to uh, begin teaching a series that he'll develop through the next couple of times that I am gone. So the uh, videos that I have selected from the pre-trib uh, conference, uh, you will really enjoy. There are going to be some things that you will learn that you've probably always wondered about. And um, and the speakers, each of these speakers had personal connections to the Holocaust. Uh, parents or uh, other relatives were uh, involved or murdered during the Holocaust and also have some interesting things to say about uh, evangelism in the Jewish communities and within, for example, one of them is on uh, the uh, role and uh, what he's discovered about the me- about the existence of Messianic Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto. So this, and that was an, th- one area that came up. It was related to his PhD dissertation, but it's something that he studied out uh, later. So you will find it uh, all very, uh, very interesting. So that's going to be uh, going to be the schedule. Right now, we will have communion on the um, Sunday after I'm gone, as is normally scheduled. We may change that. Albert White is going to be covering the pulpit both Sundays. So I'll check with Albert to see uh, if he wants to uh, uh, do communion on that second Sunday. If not, then I'll do it the Sunday before uh, before I leave. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We will have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started to make sure that we are all spiritually prepared so that this can be a time that is spiritually valuable, profitable, will count for eternity as we are walking by the Spirit, as we worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we're just so very grateful this week that we have we can remember the birth of a Savior who entered into human history to go to the cross to die for our sins, to be reminded that that we do have such a salvation that is so wonderful and uh, has provided a sufficient cleansing from sin and a payment for the sin penalty. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to study, that it uh, it cleanses us as well, and it teaches us the truth and opens our eyes to reality, that we can understand uh, the purpose for many things in this life and how you are working all things together for good and how all of the things that we see ultimately fit within the framework of the angelic conflict and, and the rebellion of Satan against you that began in eternity past. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight, we can come to understand uh, the role of Satan and the fall of Satan and the implications of this satanic rebellion for us, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Last time in our study in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, there is the warning to watch and be sober for the our enemy, our adversary, the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that verse is set in the context of understanding the testing, the, the uh, suffering, the persecution that those believers that Peter was writing to were facing. And that is something that is not always brought out or clearly understood by so many who write and teach about the spiritual life or even about Satan or even about spiritual spiritual warfare is that, that, that this role that uh, testing plays within the angelic conflict, within uh, Satan's rebellion. And so I want to review for us some of the things uh, related to uh, Satan's uh, Satan's rebellion. So tonight we're looking at the fall of Satan and the rebellion begins. So we have seen, as I just quoted this, 1 Peter 5, 8-10, this is a great synopsis of what we are to do. We are to be watchful and we are to resist him. It doesn't talk about going out and engaging in in literal war where we're attacking Satan. We are to walk by means of the Spirit and we are to resist him steadfast, steadfast in the faith. And so we've looked at those uh, passages, and so now we'll begin this study of what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, Satan, and suffering. Last time we got just that far with just a little teaser as to what we were going to cover, and the definition we'll begin with on the spiritual warfare or the angelic rebellion, is the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. That's the war. The war is not between human beings and Satan. The war is not between human beings that are believers versus unbelievers. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, our our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It is against those invisible forces in the heavenlies. That's the real battle. And yet we are to rest in, and we, when we resist Satan, as we'll see, we are resting in the power of Christ, who is the one who is engaging uh, the enemy. So tonight what I want to look at is two questions. Who is Lucifer? 
or Satan? And second, how did Lucifer or Satan fall into sin? And I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, and we are going to begin to address this particular question. You, as I know most of you who are sitting in front of me, uh, not so much those who are watching this on video or live streaming. Perhaps you have come from a different background. But for I know for most of you here, you've heard me teach on this many, many times before. But there is controversy over this among evangelicals and among those whom we have grown or been told to trust as being theologically accurate and biblically uh, uh, perceptive. And so I want to show you why it's important to take time every now and then to delve into some of the uh, technicalities of these issues because you will go places and you will read things that are in contradiction to what I am going to say. And you may be tempted to think, well, why is it that Robbie taught this when I read this by these particular scholars? And by the way, speaking about that, as we approach the new year, it's a time for many of us who've been on a plan to read through the Bible in a year to begin over again. We have some new information that's uh, posted on the uh, Dean Bible Ministries uh, website, some different plans, links to different reading plans that are out there. Um, Wendell Bell, who is a live streamer and been a uh, uh, major supporter of this ministry and a good friend, is put together a reading plan that he worked on for some time, it was along with some good background information. He's done a, good, a, a tremendous job with that. It's a chronological plan to go through uh, go through the Scripture, and uh, that's, that's a good thing. If you're, and I put up a couple of other links. Bible Gateway, I believe, is the, is the link, has a 61-day, that's two months, a 61-day chronological flyover reading plan. It, you don't read every chapter, you don't read every verse, but you hit all of the major events so that the end of two months you've done a, a really good flyover and gives you a thumbnail sketch of the chronology of biblical events. And for a lot of folks who have never read the Bible before, that's a good place to start. There's another sort of flyover. It's not chronological, but it's just a, uh, another flyover that they have that's also a 61-day reading plan, and that too is is a good plan. You can uh, look at a lot of different plans, but basically if you can spend time reading the, your Bible 15 minutes a day, you can read through the whole scripture in a year, just reading five days a week. That's not a problem. So many people look at it and it just seemed overwhelmed by having to read through 1,127 chapters, and some of the chapters are very, very long. Some of them, on the other hand, are very, very short, but they feel a little like it's a somewhat daunting task to read through their Bible. But if you break it all down, you can do it in about 10, depending on how fast you read, but based on the speed of the average American reader and based on how much time it takes to read the appropriate amount in a day, 
you can cover it in about 15 minutes a day, and that's a great sense of accomplishment to finish reading the Bible. I'm also having an article that came out on American Thinker, I believe, uh, day before yesterday, written by a man who did an outstanding job addressing this topic from a different vantage point. Perhaps some of you may have seen it and read it, but he said, when a culture like ours no, is no longer biblically literate, it impoverishes everyone, including all of the unbelievers. And he just makes some really outstanding points going through there. And it, when you understand how much of our culture, literature, history, art, uh, law, is based on and assumes a prior knowledge of the Bible, and you realize that if you don't know that, then you are just cut off. You have no capacity for really understanding what is the foundation for for all of these different aspects of our culture. So just an encouragement to set that as a plan this year and to read through the Bible. Ideally, as Wendell points out in his introduction, it's a good idea not to uh, use a study Bible, but just to get a Bible that is just text and just read through the Bible and not get all distracted with the notes and this and that and the other thing. But some of you have done that and you're moving along and you like to read a study Bible and there are some study Bibles that are good for the most part, but you will find places where whoever was responsible for writing the notes for that particular book of the Bible uh, gets a little out of bounds and off kilter. And one of the areas that I always go to at the very beginning to see uh, to see what I think about a, a, a study Bible is to look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which are the two chapters in the Bible that describe the fall of Satan to see how they uh, take those passages. And I just thought I would show you this from a couple of these. This is from the NET Study Bible Notes. The NET, NET stands for the New English Translation. It was a, you, you can buy a hardback print copy, but it was originally designed as an Internet uh, Bible, as a as an e-book, an e-Bible with, with study notes. And I tell pastors that what is valuable about it is that it alerts you to where there are problems or where there are issues in their, they have uh, syntax notes, they have study notes, they have various di different notes on grammar and other things. I said, I will uh, agree with them a lot, but there's about 20 or 30 percent of their notes where I strongly disagree with them, and uh, but I'm a, I appreciate the fact that they alerted me to the fact that there's a problem in that particular verse with something. It could be a grammar problem, it could be a word study problem, it could be a theology problem, but they've alerted me to the fact that there's a pro problem or controversy there, but usually their decision is wrong. Uh, most, all, all the New Testament was done at that time by men who were in the New Testament faculty at Dallas Seminary, and almost to a man, their lordship salvation, and they have a number of really bad notes. Uh, a lot of the men in the who did the Old Testament part had been at Dallas. Some were Dallas professors, some were not, 
and uh, it's a little better in most areas than not, but this is the study note that is uh, on Ezekiel uh, 28.15, and it states the imagery of the lament, that's uh, what Ezekiel 28 is a lament, first to the uh, prince of Tyre in the first 14 verses, or 11 verses, and then it shifts to the king of Tyre. And for those who are evangelically orthodox, based on the scriptures, we'll see, that shift from the prince of Tyre to the king of Tyre is important. The prince of Tyre is the human ruler over Tyre. The king of Tyre is the uh, demonic power that is behind the unseen power that's behind the throne. So in this footnote, it says, the imagery of the lament appears to draw upon an extra biblical Eden tradition about the expulsion of the first man, that would be Adam, uh, from the garden due to his pride. So they interpret this as uh, something about Adam. It goes on to say the biblical Eden tradition speaks of cherubs placed as guardians at the garden entrance following the sin of Adam and Eve, but no guardian cherub like the one described in verse 14 is depicted or mentioned in the biblical account. The bottom line there is if what they're saying is true, then there's some contradictions between this account and Genesis. So it, it this is one of my problems with this view is it really... Um, raises a lot of questions about inerrancy and infallibility of, of Scripture. And then in the last sentence they say, Ezekiel's imagery also appears to reflect Mesopotamian and Canaanite mythology at certain points. And the, that's soft peddling it. What this view says is that Ezekiel borrowed this from Canaanite and Mesopotamian uh, mythology. It's not originated with, with God. Then we had the New King James Version Study Bible. This was edited by uh, Earl Rodmacher, who's now with the Lord, and I knew Dr. Rodmacher quite well over the last 10 or 15 years of his life. And it's also the New Testament was edited by, by Wayne House. But, the, but what, the way these are normally done is you, they will pick different men who have either written a lot about or studied or taught a particular book a lot in their career and assign that book to those men. So each book has the study notes done by a different scholar. And so it doesn't necessarily reflect the theology of the uh, of the men who were the, the key editors. I think Earl Rodmacher was the overall editor and Wayne was New Testament and um, Ron, can't think of his last name right now, uh, used to be up at Portland, now he's at Dallas, uh, was the Old Testament editor. And I think he's the guy who did Isaiah. But our, and our, I'm not sure who did Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28.12, the note says, seal or perfection is more literally the one sealing a plan uh, in effect, the king affixed the official seal of his signet ring to the plans that made Tyre one of the leading centers of commerce in that day. Notice he hasn't addressed it, but he's taking the king literally as a reference to the literal king of Tyre, not to a uh, supernatural power behind him. 
He says, these descriptions mark out the king of Tyre as an exceptional ruler displaying the ideals of kingship in the ancient Middle East. Then in verse 13, he says, in Eden, the garden of God, he says, this is, a po- this is possibly an exaggerated comparison. In other words, he's saying this is just hyperbole. It wasn't really Eden, the garden of God. It's just hyper- a hyperbolic statement. He says, this king invaded a place like Eden in its beauty. Uh, the Hebrew verb uh, the, for created is the same as the one used in Genesis 1.1. Just as in Genesis, the word emphasizes God's active work in history. It was God's sovereign plan and purpose to allow this man to become king. And then in verse 14, the holy mountain of God could be the holy mountain of gods. It's Elohim, so it could be translated as a plural rather than as a singular. According to Canaanite beliefs, the seat of the gods was in the mountains or the mountains of the north, see Psalm 48.2. The focus here seems to be on the king of Tyre's attempt to enter into the council of the gods So instead of the verse referring to the king's presence in Jerusalem, it could refer more logically to a Phoenician ritual, the celebration of their patron god Melkart's fiery resurrection. This king wanted to imitate Melkart. Now the problem with these assertions is that if you go try to pin them down as to when did this happen, what king was this, what's the historical event that you're alluding to, there isn't one. They're just saying it possibly could be. And then um, when we look at Isaiah, this is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. That's a commentary that was put out by Dallas Theological Seminary. It was published around 1982 or 1983. I got my Master's of Theology in 1980. I knew all of the men who, who wrote different uh, commentaries on different books. In a couple of cases, they were classmates of mine, which is true for Isaiah. Uh, The man who wrote Isaiah had his father was one of those uh, bright and shining stars that had graduated from Dallas during the glory years of Lewis Berry Chafer and gone on to be a professor for many, many years at Moody Bible Institute. And so there were men like that who came along, the second generation in a family. And so uh, their, uh, uh, their, their skids were greased really well before they ever came to seminary. And he always had a job working in the seminary. And upon graduation, uh, he, uh, he was teaching a course. And later on, he had a spectacular fall. But before he left Dallas, it turns out he admitted that he had uh, he had serious doubts about dispensationalism, probably four or five years about the time he wrote this, uh, before uh, four or five years before he left Dallas Seminary, and so that's a problem you run into. You don't know the backstory on some people, and so he takes he takes this as a uh, as a reference not to the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14, the I wills, but he applies it to uh, Sennacherib. And so he, you can see the reference down here at the end. This is on his comments on 14.9 to 11. He said, this tyrant, Sennacherib, 
is envisioned as having died and as being met by the kings already in their grave. And then in 1412 to 15, he says, uh, the brilliance of a star in the early dawn suddenly vanishes when the sun rises. Sennacherib, because of his great power, thought himself godlike. But now by startling contrast, he would be in the grave. So that just shows you that you have to keep your thinking cap on. You have to be biblically instructed as to what's going on here and why scholars of this stature and publications of this stature have these kinds of statements in there. And it has become more and more popular over the last 30 years for anything written on Isaiah or Ezekiel to take the view that the these statements are not about the fall of Lucifer, but they are about uh, some human king, some historical figure, something like that. And I'll go through the issues in just a second. But you have to pay attention to that. And I think that it minimizes an, an, the understanding of the origin of evil. Now, in in their defense, the positive thing is usually they don't take both passages as being historical or mythological. Usually they'll take one or the other that way. But the problem is if neither one, one of the many problems is that if you don't take both of them as related to the fall of Satan, then you don't have the Bible giving any description of the origin of evil in the universe. And in that case, it's not much different than any pagan mythology. And so it, 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 examples like this show how the foundations of, of, of solid biblical theology within evangelicalism have been attacked and eroded suddenly over, over the years. So when we look at this, the interpretation of uh, whether it's Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, what we will dis discover is that uh, there are basically three views, and that's what's listed here on this slide. The first view is that the first view is that this is understood to be Satan, and interpreted to be Satan or uh, perhaps related to Satan. By that I mean it is either talking specifically about Satan, that's A, or B, it is talking about a historical or a typological figure, such as the Antichrist, who is, uh, who is the, the representative of Satan, and so it is addressing Satan through a human figure. So in either case, ultimately, it's really talking about the fall of Satan. The second is those like what we just saw from the Bible Knowledge Commentary who interpret this to have been fulfilled by some historical figure back during the Old Testament period. And then the third view is that this represents some sort of dependence on Canaanite or Mesopotamian mythology. And so the writers of Scripture are just borrowing ideas and massaging it over to 
emphasize some point that they're trying to make, but it is not referring to uh, Satan or Lucifer specifically. So let's look at these different views and learn some things about them. In this first slide, what we're talking about is those who interpret this to be Satan uh, specifically. And so those who refer to this as um, referring to Satan specifically, um, we find that this is exhibited in a number of places. For example, in the Septuagint, LXX is the Roman numeral for 70. The story of the Septuagint is that 70 rabbis over 70 days translated the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, from Hebrew into Greek so that the now Greek-speaking Jews of Alexandria and Egypt uh, could read and understand the Torah. This was done around 200 to 250 B.C. So the Septuagint interprets this. That's a powerful witness because that shows that a pre-Christian testimony from the Septuagint interprets this as Satan. Uh, There's early pseudepigrapha. Now, pseudepigrapha means false writing. Pseuda meaning false and graphia meaning writings. And so this is not the apocrypha. Apocrypha consisted of about 11 or 13 different books that uh, Christians included within the Old Testament canon. And later, Roman Catholic uh, dogma at the Council of Trent accepted those as part of the Old Testament, but no Jewish group ever accepted them as part of the Old Testament canon. Pseudepigrapha are just religious writings that made some sort of claim to inspiration but was never accepted by anybody as being part of the of the Scripture. So you had two pseudepigraphs pseudepigraphic writings, the life of Adam and Eve in the uh, 2nd century AD and uh, a Slavonic uh, copy of the book of Enoch also in the 2nd century. And these both identified Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 as being a reference, uh, a reference to Satan. Then you had early church fathers uh, such as uh, Origen and uh, you had Origen and Tertullian, who gave us the term Trinity. For Trinitas, to describe the Trinity, gave us that vocabulary word. Other church fathers, such as Cyprian in the early 3rd century, uh, Gregory Thaumaturgus, Gregory of Nazianzen, who was one of the great, um, uh, great church fathers during the Arian controversy. Gregory of Nyssa was a second one of that group. Jerome, who translated the uh, Bible in, from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, the Vulgate, and uh, most of the writers, uh, early church fathers from Augustine to Gregory the Great, so from about 400 to 600, the vast majority interpret these passages as referring to uh, the fall of Satan and Lucifer. In the Middle Ages, uh, Peter Lombard. Peter Lombard wrote a systematic theology called The Sentences of Peter Lombard, and it was considered so great that every uh, seminary student after that had to write a commentary on his sentences. 
And that would be like taking Lewis Berry Chafer's systematic theology and every seminary student not only had to read the systematic theology but had to write a commentary on it along the way. So this was, uh, of course, they didn't have any distractions or entertainment at the time, but that's how great Peter Lombard was considered, Albert Albertus Magnus or Albert the Great, and Thomas Aquinas, who's considered the uh, greatest theologian of the Roman Catholic Church, all held this these passages to refer to the fall of Satan. After the Reformation, you have John Milton's uh, huge work, Paradise Lost, John Bunyan's Holy War, John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, William Kelly, an early dispensationalist, all believe this referred to the fall of Satan in both passages, along with Lewis Berry Chafer, C.I. Schofield, um, Barnhouse, in his book, The Invisible War, uh, Gleason Archer, who was professor at uh, Tr- uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Charles Feinberg, just to name a few. These were the bright and shining lights of 20th century dispensational theology. So these guys all held to that. It was the dominant view until you get to uh, to the late uh, middle, uh, late 19th century, as it were. Now, the second view is the view that um, uh, this is, uh, uh, are the second view in that first category is that this refers to a historical figure, but it's typical of Satan. So he's addressing Satan through a historical figure, either in the past or in the future. Hippolytus, an early church father, took the view that it's really addressing the Antichrist in the future, but the power behind the Antichrist in the future is Satan. So it is indirectly addressing the fall of Satan. Uh, William Kelly understood it as a beast of revelation. That's the Antichrist. And Delich, an antitype of the devil and a type of the Antichrist. I, I think, and I'll explain this when we get there, I think that's the more precise view is that because it talks about him descending into Sheol and the other kings laughing at him, and that fits what happens when the Antichrist uh, dies. Okay, the second major view is the view of historical fulfillment, that this was um, a typical view of, of uh, I mean, that that this was the historical, uh, it will only refer to a historical figure in the Talmud. That's the Jewish commentary on the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the compilation of the oral tradition of the Jews, the, what the rabbis had taught, and it isn't written down until about 200 to 300 A.D. In the Talmud, they came along a couple hundred years later and wrote a commentary on the, on the Talmud. So if you see a page in the Talmud, there's a center square, and that's the Mishnah. Then there's a margin around it, and then there's another area of printed text, and that's the commentary on the section that's in the middle. So the Talmud said it was Nebuchadnezzar, so it's fulfilled in the past. Uh, Midrash was a commentary on, on Scripture. Midrash, Rabbi, I believe, is on Genesis. That takes it that way. Uh, a couple of minor early church fathers held that view. Chrysostom related it to Ezekiel 28, but it's historical. Uh, Calvin and Luther both took it as being fulfilled in the past, but they're amillennial. They're still holding to a 
in prophecy a non-literal interpretation. Then you have the mythological view. And in the mythological view, this really came into vogue in the late 19th century once you have religious liberalism because you're denying any kind of divine involvement with the writing of Scripture. These are just men writing uh, what they've learned, and so it has nothing at all to do with God or anything related to absolute truth or inspiration. And so they believe that that this is, um, they, they, they were just borrowing ideas from Canaanite or Mesopotamian mythology. The trouble with that is that they can't point to any myth that is known that relates to it. And I've pointed this out before here, and I've pointed it out to friends of mine elsewhere. Uh, I ran across a PhD dissertation written in the late 80s uh, by a man at Andrews Seminary that was read by three of the top Old Testament scholars at that time, and he did a phenomenal job demonstrating that he his studies, he had learned Akkadian and he had learned Ugaritic and Hebrew and all of the Semitic languages and went into a detailed study of all these different potential myths that existed at the time and demonstrated that none of them even come close to having something that could support this. And his conclusion after about 300 pages was to demonstrate exhaustively that there's no, nothing, no foundation to this other than uh, comes out of liberalism. And it's basically uh, Satan trying to uh, take himself out of the Old Testament. So that's what we have uh, going on in, in, in the background. So that should help you if you run into these things, and you will. So uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 clearly teach that there was this prehistoric angelic creature who rebelled against God, his sin is described in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, and, his, uh, and it's further described in more detail in Ezekiel chapter uh, 28, uh, verses uh, 12 down to about verse 18 or so. We'll look at those eventually. So when you look at these things that I've been talking about, the fact these claim that this isn't Satan at all, uh, we'll fi we are finding more and more evangelical scholars who are taking this view. So I've got uh, just a few points to cover to to answer that those claims. First of all, we have to recognize that any methodology, any approach to Scripture that identifies the figure in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 as a Canaanite myth or as some sort of idealized non-historical man is at the is contradicting the very idea of of divine inspiration and inerrancy it's just flawed you can, you can't hold to a view of inerrancy of scripture and a mythological referent because what you're saying there is this guy's not getting his information uh, the writer Isaiah is not getting his information from God, he is borrowing and manufacturing 
uh, his own interpretation from some Canaanite myth. And so it's talking about just a pure human author who's, who is uh, making it up as it goes along. And that's why it derived out of liberal theology in the late 19th century because it uh, came from a presupposition that there's no real divine inspiration. Second thing is that what is said in both of these passages goes far beyond the abilities of any human figure. What is claim- and now what they try to do is say, well, there, it's just hyperbole. Well, you, we re- clearly recognize the existence of figures of speech and the use of hyperbole in passages in Scripture, but the, these go far beyond that. It, it, if you take it all as hyperbole, then it really means nothing because you've destroyed any uh, literal significance to it. There's no historical figure that can fit the description of either Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28. And no matter how much they've tried to apply this to Tiglath-Beleser or Sennacherib with Sargon, with Nebuchadnezzar or any of the other Babylonian kings, it just doesn't fit. And third point, Isaiah says, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven. And unless you just allegorize all those terms so that heaven is just some elevated space, um, it, it, it doesn't make sense. It is stating that this is a person who was at the side of God and wanted to be like God in heaven. And so it must be taken to be a literal reference and no Babylonian or Assyrian ruler or any other human being ever fell uh, from uh, heaven. So when you compare these passages along with the various Babylonian judgment passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah, then you, you, you just completely lose its intent if you don't have a literal interpretation. Uh, fourth, uh, Ezekiel addresses his lament to two individuals. The first part of the chapter is addressed to the prince of Tyre. The second half is addressed to the king of Tyre. And what that shows is they're two distinct individuals. And what happens when people take a non-satanic interpretation is they minimize the distinction between the meaning of the prince of Tyre as the literal ruler of Tyre and the king of Tyre as the power behind the throne. And this is typical of of people. they're, They're not treating Scripture with the level of respect that it deserves. And so, um, this is is a sign that that they have a lower view of inspiration. Fifth observation is that in the New Testament, Paul identifies Satan's sin as pride or arrogance in First Timothy three six and seven. Now, how would Paul know that unless he had? Uh, he understood Isaiah 14 to refer to the pride of Satan as well as Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, of course, you could say, well, God gave him that information, but um, and that would probably get around it. But if you reject a satanic reference to both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, you just don't have any idea how sin entered in the universe or what that sin was. But Paul clearly has that information in First Timothy. The sixth point is that the descriptions that we find in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are descriptions that cannot apply to a human king. 
There's no contextual evidence that this is hyperbole or metaphor, but they are viewed either as history, something that has happened, or something that will happen in history in the future, and that is what we call prophecy. It's not just some sort of exaggeration to make some sort of spiritual point. Uh, Seventh point is that in Ezekiel 28.15, the cherub, and see, how do you get around uh, the rev- calling this human king a cherub, how could that be a figure of speech? You don't have any kind of documentation to support that. He said to be blameless in your ways from the day you were created. So that line in Ezekiel twenty fifteen indicates that this is a creature who was created blameless without sin. So it, there's only two creatures who have been created without sin. Uh, well, two classes of creatures. There's Adam as an individual, and there is Satan. Of course, the angels that followed him were also all created without sin. But you, So you either have an, it referring to an angel or you have it referring to one human, which would be Adam. The eighth point is that in Ezekiel 28, the king is referred to as the anointed cherub who covers. The word translated create there is the Hebrew word bara. Only God is ever used as the subject of that verb. There are other words to make or to form or to shape that are used with human beings as the ones who do it, but this kind of creative activity is restricted to God and God alone. So there's a direct creation of this anointed cherub. Also, you have the fact that uh, this cherub is uh, is said to cover, which indicates a he's covering the throne of God, indicates something that goes beyond any human being. And then finally, uh, the ninth point is that this king in Ezekiel was in the garden of God, and that can't fit any historical uh, figure. It could only fit uh, Satan, who was in the garden of God. And the description of the garden of God is not identical to Eden in terms of where Adam and Eve were in Ezekiel chapter. I mean, in Genesis chapter two. So it indicates uh, a reference to the throne room of God prior to Genesis chapter two in the fall. Of man. So with that, let's look at Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13 and Isaiah chapter 14 must be understood together. They are not refer they're not separated, okay? This is one prophecy that is introduced in verse 1 of chapter 13 as the burden against Babylon which Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw. And if you then look at verse 1 of chapter 14, there's no break. It just continues the narrative from the end of chapter 13. You don't have the introduction of another event, another revelation, another vision. If you go to chapter 15, verse 1, it says the burden against Moab. 
So you have one burden or a prophetic judgment against Babylon that begins in 13.1, and then the next prophetic judgment that's announced is against Moab in chapter 15, verse 1. So everything in 13 and 14 must be taken as being uh, related. And it is a burden against Babylon. So then the next question that comes along is what is the meaning of, of Babylon? So I want to give you a little bit of a timeline here. We'll break it down between 740 B.C., which is approximately the time that Isaiah begins his, his ministry. And we learn that his ministry began approximately 740 to 739 B.C., and he died after 681 B.C. So he lives to be about somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 59, 60 years of age. Tradition and an allusion to it in Hebrews says that Isaiah was tortured and sawn in two. Not a pleasant death. He is, uh, it was during the reign, I believe, of Manasseh, the last uh one of the most evil kings of that time. It may have been one other. I'm just stating that off the top of my head. He is, um, he is a prophet who predicts the, not just what will happen with Assyria, but he predicts long-range the defeat of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. He lived through the Assyrian invasion, the northern kingdom fell in 722. Now, he's a prophet in the south, but he lives through that as Sennacherib came south after defeating the northern kingdom. Remember, he goes all the way up uh, to the walls of Jerusalem, and then the angel of the Lord interferes, and at night, while they're sleeping, uh, all of the soldiers in Sennacherib's army dies. He wakes up the next morning, and he doesn't have an army, and he flees with the just a few of the men that were left with him, and he goes back to Nineveh where he is assassinated uh, by, by one of his sons. So this gives us a, a, a little bit of the background to Isaiah and what is happening here. Another thing that you should be aware of is that the imagery that is used in Revelation chapters 17 and 18 talking about the fall of Babylon, is based on these Old Testament passages. So John, as he's writing Revelation, as the Lord is revealing it to him, the Lord is using all of these images and language that comes out of Isaiah 13 and 14, as well as Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Ezekiel 26 to 28. Those are three key passages related to Babylon. And the Lord applies those to this future Babylon. Now, as I pointed out when we studied Revelation, is the a, a long-term view, interpretation that was quite popular, is that Babylon in Revelation becomes a code word for the Antichrist's future kingdom. It's not literal Babylon, it is figurative Babylon. But the 
when you look at the scriptures, Babylon is never used anywhere else in the Bible, not in the Old Testament and not in Peter for referring to a spiritual uh, code or a code for something, uh, some uh, cryptic reference of some, some city or town. Babylon always means literal Babylon, the city on, uh, in, on the, uh, in the Mesopotamian plain. And so we understand that this must be referring to also to the site of Babylon. What we'll see here is that there are various things that are said about the uh, fall of Babylon that have not been true, even though I have read people who have taken them less than literally to claim that they have been true. For example, in Isaiah 13, verse 19, we read, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. Now, we all know that there's a lot of debate over just where Sodom and Gomorrah existed. Uh, a few years ago, it was pretty clear and accepted by most most scholars and archaeologists that it was at Babed Drav, which is located about halfway down the eastern coast of of, uh, of the Dead Sea in Jordan. But there has been a dig that has been going on now for at least six or seven years located on the north end of the Dead Sea that many, uh, many believe uh, is the actual site of Sodom. We don't even know where it was, and there's nothing there. Nobody lives there. Nobody has lived there. And the reality is, is that historically there have been inhabitants who have lived on the site of ancient Babylon, we know exactly where it was, uh, over the years. It has never been totally devastated and totally barren as is depicted in the description of its judgment in uh, Isaiah chapter 13. So the final destruction of Babylon is yet to come, and that's what's described in Revelation chapter uh, 17 and 18. But Babylon is important in Scripture because when we go back to the time period following the flood of Noah, and remember the antediluvian civilization, there's a post, I mean, excuse me, the antediluvian civilization is from Adam to Noah. Then there's a post-Diluvian situation, which is from Noah to the return of Jesus. And then there's the millennial civilization. So we're in that time period between Noah and the return uh, and the return of Christ. And the first major conflict that we see coming out of Genesis is the founding of the city of uh, Babel in Genesis uh, chapter uh, 11, we have the story of Nimrod and the founding of the city of Babel and the building of this tower uh, to heaven. And so that is followed in a couple of chapters, actually in the next chapter, in uh, Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham, and then by Genesis chapter uh, 14, you have the victory of, of 
Abraham over the armies of Amraphel and Keterleomer, and he goes to Jerusalem where he pays tribute and gives a tithe to Melchizedek, who's the priest king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And so there's, you begin to see this contrast that runs all through the scripture between Babylon as the city that is opposed to God and Jerusalem that is the city of God. And even a Babel terminology, Sodom and Gomorrah terminology is applied to uh, Jerusalem when they are apostate during the time of the great prophets, the times of Isaiah, the times of, of, of Jeremiah. So this is part of that whole uh, background and understanding what is going on uh, during that uh, during that time. The major here's a map showing the major locations. Here's Jerusalem over here, right about where where uh, my here's written Jerusalem, but right about where my arrow is here is Jerusalem, and it's almost on the same uh, longitude. Parts at latitude. I always get those confused. Uh, as Babylon, same level, almost directly due west of Babylon. And Babylon is the capital of the Babylonian Empire, and it's captured by the Medes and the Persians. That's described in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 6, 5, Daniel 5. And there, what do we have? We have a huge banquet. Daniel has been brought in. He's been uh, hasn't been a key leader under Belteshazzar, and there's this mysterious handwriting on the wall. Daniel comes in. They say interpret it. It says tekel tekel mene uparsin, and he interprets it and says your days are numbered, and you've been found, you've been weighed on the scales, and you're you've been found wanting, and you're, you're tonight you will lose your kingdom. And what happened? What happened is that uh, the Euphrates goes through Babylon. I believe I always get those messed up. What do we have here? It's on the map. Yeah, it's Euphrates goes right through Babylon. And the Euphrates is dammed up so that now the armies of Cyrus can go in under under the um, overpass, as it were, through the tunnels uh, where the water was once it's blocked off. And it's... it's uh, and so they go in, they come in at night, it's a surprise raid, and they take the city without a fight. Now that's important to remember because of what we see in, in uh, Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13 is often interpreted historically, okay? Now let's just read a couple of passages as we go through Isaiah 13. It starts off, verse 2, lift up a banner on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I've commanded my sanctified ones, so those are those on God's side. I've commanded my sanctified ones. I've also called my mighty ones for anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. Very possibly this is referring to angels and their role behind the scene of, of human history. And we see in verse 4 talks about the Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. 
the Lord and his weapons and indignation to destroy the whole land. The Medes and the Persians were located just to the south. Uh, as we look at this map, the area of the Medes and the Persians was down in in the, I'm looking to see if it's on here, the Zagros Mountains. Okay, so that's over in this this area over here towards towards Iran. That's not that far. That wouldn't be described as the ends of the earth and a far, uh, far country. And then in verse 9, it's described as the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. Now, the term day of the Lord is sometimes used in a few rare places of any judgment military conquest engineered by God in history, but its primary use has to do with describing the end of the tribulation period culminating in the destruction of the forces of the Antichrist. And it's often depicted by the sun darkening and the moon turning uh, to blood. And so if the sun is darkened, the moon also doesn't reflect light. And that's what we have in verse 10. For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. This is not just what you'll hear people say is this is apocalyptic hyperbole. But you find this again and again in Day of the Lord passages, which is something that happens at the end of the tribulation, not something that happened in the Old Testament. Verse 11, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. This isn't what happened when Babylon uh, was defeated historically. And then we go down to verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdom... The beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. And see, that's happened all through history. Charlie Dyer, who later was at Moody Bible Institute, was also a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary, wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on this issue, whether Babylon would be literal Babylon or figurative Babylon, and he traces the whole history of this. That was during the time when Saddam Hussein ruled over Iraq, and Charlie made a couple of trips over to Iraq at that time and went to Babylon because Saddam Hussein was rebuilding the city. And so all of this transpired, and, um, and he demonstrates that the interpretation that uh, is usually that this happened with the destruction of Babylon in 539 just doesn't fit at all. It's a description that, um, uh, of great violence. Look, skip, go back a little bit to verse 13. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. That's all related to the end of the tribulation type language. Uh, verse um, uh, 15, everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will, be, will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Uh, 
That is not what happens in Daniel 5. That's not the description of how the Medes and the Persians took Babylon at, at that time. And, uh, and it goes on to describe how, how devastating this judgment's going to be in verse 21 and 22. But while beasts of the desert will lie there and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will dwell there and wild goats will caper there, the hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in their peasant in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come and her days will not be prolonged. And then there's a little bit of a shift as God talks about what's going to happen to, to Jacob, that is uh, Israel. God will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. That is not talking about what happened in five, uh, 536 when they returned under Zerubbabel. That was only about 40,000. And so this is a description now in verse 3. It talks about the fall of the king of Babylon. It will come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve. Okay, rest from that. That's talking about the future rest of Israel that comes when the Messiah returns. And so he's saying this is what you're going to say at that future time when the Messiah comes. So you have to pay attention to time frame here. He's standing here in about uh, 7.30 or so B.C. And he says, way in the future here is when you're going to uh, have this lament against this king of Babylon. And this time in the future is when you are given rest from all of your sorrows when the Messiah has come. And at this future time, which is roughly the end of the tribulation, you're going to be talking about this king at that time. Okay, that's why I say it's not directly talking about Satan. It's talking about the Antichrist. It says, you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. That's the future Antichrist. How the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he rules the nations in anger. That's the all talking about the Antichrist. And then it talks about how he he is he, he's killed, he's cut down at the end of verse eight. And then verse nine, Sheol from beneath is excited about you. Okay? Sheol, the grave, is excited about receiving the Antichrist at, at the end. Uh, to meet you at your coming, it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nation. She, see, these, all the kings that followed you are going to meet you at your coming. And they shall say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. And basically what they are saying is, is you're going to die. You were unable to lead us. You're going to die, and uh, you're going to go to the grave. And uh, very picturesque language. And then it describes how he has fallen. And it's, it relates to the power behind him at this point, who is... Uh, Satan, but uh, uses the term Lucifer, which was from the Latin, literally it's uh, Halel ben Shahar, which means a bright light, the sun of the morning. 
how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. See, it's Lucifer is the one who indwelt and empowers the Antichrist. And so that's why he's addressing Satan through the future Antichrist. And these, this is the sin of Satan. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. That alludes to power over all of the angels. They're often uh, represented by clouds. I will be like the Most High. He wants to be like God. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. So this is a talking about Satan, and it's really talking about something that is said in the future but it relates to what the original sin was originally stated uh, in the past. So you have to watch your timeline there as you go through that. So that takes us through an understanding of Isaiah and, and how Isaiah 13 is clearly not talking about a historical fall of Babylon, but it's talking about the same thing Revelation 17 and 18 is talking about, the fall of Babylon uh, in the future. And uh, it is believed by myself and by numerous prophecy scholars that take the word of God literally that Babylon, therefore, must be rebuilt. It's not a code word for Rome. It is going to be the seat of the Antichrist's power, economic power base in the future. And that sort of ties things together. So that's Isaiah 14. We'll come back next time and talk about uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 and see how all of this relates to the what Satan is now doing in history and why he assaults Christians like he does in the book of Job as a background to understanding First Peter. Father, thank you for the opportunity to go through these passages as a uh, flyover Uh, just looking at many of the details, understanding that this is not yet fulfilled prophecy, that this is talking about a literal individual, a literal personage who falls and who has committed a great sin of arrogance to be like the Most High and who, because of that sin, brings the kings of the nations down low and will uh, bring about this complete destruction of Babylon and the king of Babylon who is the one through whom he is working, which is depicted clearly as the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Father, we pray for a good understanding of these things, knowing that uh, they help us to ultimately understand the angelic conflict which rages around us and also your protection for us as believers. And uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.